a copy of God's Word, take a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Many of us know what it's, it's like for somebody's presence to impact us. Maybe you're at work, everyone is waiting for that special meeting to start, and you're chatting about this and that, how the game went, what the kids did, how you think the company ought to run, until the boss enters, and the chatter halts as he starts the meeting. His presence impacts us. Maybe you and your siblings are eating at the table And mom and dad step out just a minute. And it doesn't take too long before someone's out of their seat. Someone's picking on little sister. Things get loud. Nobody's sitting still. A napkin makes its way at somebody's head. Then mom and dad enter the room again. And everyone's quiet and pretending to be normal. (laughs) Mom and dad's presence impact you. Maybe you're walking through grief. You've experienced great loss. You're alone. You're tired of these dark thoughts spiraling into despair. You're about to lose it, and all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. It's your best friend. She's come to be with you, pray with you. She brought you a favorite beverage and flowers. You experience comfort, support, love. Her presence impacts you. All of us share experiences like these. Somebody's presence impacts us. Today we'll see what happens when God's presence impacts the church. His presence has great impact on this church in Jerusalem. We've been talking about the church being filled with the Holy Spirit and This is God's presence in their midst. It impacts them, but perhaps not always in the way we expect. Two ways God's presence impacts this community is great grace on the one hand and great fear on the other. Let's read together beginning in verse 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul... And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Father, we have a wonderful passage today that speaks not only to your great grace, but also to the fear that must be present in our midst, an awe of your presence and holiness. Work both of these things into our hearts today, in Jesus' name, amen. So God's presence impacts the church with great grace and great fear. Let's look first at the great grace impacting the church. We might summarize it like this. The gospel of resurrection and the grace of God compel impressive generosity. The gospel of resurrection and the grace of God compel impressive generosity. We've got a similar snapshot in chapter 2 of the church's generosity. Uh, Luke can't help but notice that a basic characteristic of a true church is that the people are generous. Notice that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 32. Now, there's no need to read communism into this paradigm. This is not an equal distribution of wealth and property that's imposed from above. The the possessions still belong to the individuals, and giving it away was... Voluntary as the Spirit moved them to meet needs. Having said that, the way they viewed their own possessions certainly challenges us. They held everything in common. What's mine is not just mine, but, but given to me to serve others. They treat their possessions very much like the Good Samaritan treated his possessions. In Luke 10, there's, there's this man, you remember, who has tremendous needs. He's been beat up, and the Samaritan cares for him and binds up his wounds and then takes him to the, the local hotel. And, and not only does he pay up the bills, but he tells the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. This kind of open-handed generosity. Take my credit card. Get this man whatever he needs to get well. Some of them even sold houses and lands and brought the proceeds of what was sold. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Part of our our memory verse this week as as a church, part of it is sell your possessions and give to the needy. We see this being modeled right here in the early church. 
Now, it doesn't mean they they sold every house. Chapter 2 said that they were breaking bread daily in their homes. Their homes were the meeting places for the church. They didn't sell those. Rather, the abundance of some became the means God used to meet the needs of others. They didn't wait for the housing market to pick up. As the needs arose, they met them sacrificially. They found creative ways to sell their stuff and meet the needs in an an orderly fashion, laying them at the apostles' feet and distributing them to, to 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 those in need. And the result is that there's not a needy person among them. We, we saw back in, in chapter uh, 4, verse 4, that the number of men had come to about 5,000. Just the number of men. We're talking well over 5,000 people in this Jerusalem church and not a needy person among them. This is some impressive generosity. This would have made a mark on society. This isn't a bunch of rich people doing favors for one another. This, this is, these are people who are one heart and one soul across economic and social barriers. And they are reaching out to one another as family and caring for one another. What's compelling them to view their possessions this way. I mean, how can they give up the give them up so easily to serve others? Many of us have lots of stuff. If we're not careful, our stuff takes hold of us. We begin to, to love it too much. We turn good gifts into idols and, and we we hold them with a, a tight fist and it's hard to let go of our stuff. You stay away from my stuff. It's hard to let Jesus determine what we do with our stuff. Jesus said it would be hard to let go of stuff. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What is it that that loosens our fists around our stuff to then serve others with our stuff? The stuff isn't bad. Wealth is not bad. Our hearts are bad. What compels the heart away from idolizing the things of this world to loving others with the things of this world? Well, two things that we see here, the gospel of resurrection and the grace of God. Right between these two descriptions of the church's generosity is verse 33. It's like the the meat of the generosity buns, right? Right there in the middle is verse 33, with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The gospel of resurrection and the grace of God are compelling this impressive generosity. How? Well, let's take the gospel of resurrection first. We could go several places. We, I mean, we could look at how Jesus' resurrection vindicates everything he said about money. We could look at, at how Jesus' resurrection makes him the highest and richest king of all kings. We could look at how Jesus' resurrection means that one day we're going to give an account at the judgment before him of how we spent our money. But, but I'll just stick to two right here. I'm going to take you to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 10. You can flip over just one book to the right. Romans 6, verse 10 and 11. He says, For the death 
Christ died. He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the Christian here. When the Christian is united to Jesus, he is united to Jesus' death and to Jesus' resurrection. How does this resurrection truth in Romans 10 compel generosity? Well, for the Christian, it says that that old self that, that abused money and that hoarded money for selfish gain, that old self is dead. It died with Christ. And then there's this new self, though, that that rises with Christ. And this new self stewards wealth for God's glory and the the good of others. We're alive to God. When, When Christ rose to live for God, we rose with Him to live for God down to the very penny. Sin no longer rules as Christ rules and lives inside to bring His Father glory with our wealth. And everything else in our life. The other passage is Luke 14. Luke 14. We're going on the other side of Acts now. Pass John to Luke chapter 14. Verse 12. Jesus is... Uh, is uh, Dining at a house with a ruler of the Pharisees, likely a very rich guy. And he says this to him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So why serve people now who can't pay you back? Because your rich father in heaven will at the resurrection of the just. Your reward isn't here. It's with him. And Jesus' resurrection ensures our resurrection. When you invest money, talking about in the world, when you invest money in the world, you want some gain, don't you? You want to make a wise investment. You want some level of assurance that what you're putting your money in is going to make more money. Nothing wrong with making wise investments. The problem, though, is that we're so consumed with gain in this life alone that we lose sight of the true riches in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is giving us the best investment plan. Invest in his kingdom priorities now, like giving to those in need, and your reward will come at the resurrection of the just, guaranteed. Right? His stocks aren't going down. His kingdom isn't going to fail. He has no competitors to, to put him out of business. He is risen above all. And when you know that, what's all this... Extra stuff. What's, what's this house over here and this land that I have if somebody's in need? I mean, I'm going to inherit the earth with Christ one day. 
So give generously because you live for God, Romans 6, and because your reward, because reward beyond your wildest dreams is coming at the resurrection of the just, Luke 14. That's, that's a couple of ways of how the gospel of resurrection would compel generosity. How about the grace of God? The grace of God. How does the grace of God compel generosity? Well, let's turn to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm taking you here because it's one of the clearest examples of God's grace compelling generosity. I'm also taking you here because, uh, to, to dismiss the notion that only rich people can be generous. Not true. The churches of Macedonia were in extreme poverty, and yet they still gave generously. So Paul is, is taking up a collection to, to help the poor back in Jerusalem, and he's writing to churches to encourage them to, to give to this collection. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Note that. I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. We got the very impoverished church here giving beyond their means towards this collection. And notice what it's rooted in in verse 1 the grace of God. When God's grace comes upon the church, it leads them to show grace towards others. Grace is unmerited favor, to put it simply. We, we, we did nothing to earn God's favor. He showed us favor based on His own loving choice, not based on anything we did. And this unmerited favor from God, when it comes into a people, it produces a people who show unmerited favor towards others. Paul even calls the money collection several times in this chapter an act of grace on the church's part. God's grace has become visible through the generosity that the church members are showing one another. But let's get even more specific. Look at verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is asking them to show grace by giving away their money. And this is the driving factor. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. That's the gospel right there. That's the good news of grace right there. Perhaps you're here today and you wonder what Christianity is, is all about. Well, here it is. We, we were wretched and poor sinners. Our sins separated us from God. That's the worst condition you can be in. Separated from God. No hope for salvation. No way to, to, to buy our way out. And we were all going to perish this way. 
But the richest person in the universe chose to love us by giving up his riches to to see us forgiven. Jesus himself was so rich in God that he left heavenly glory, took the form of a servant, and humbled himself to death on a cross so that you might become rich in God with him. And the deeper that grace gets worked into our hearts, the more freedom we'll experience in giving to others. Someone asked me last year, you know, why didn't you preach on giving when the budget was low? Several reasons. But one big one was that we preach Christ. Far be it from us that we're meeting a budget and don't know Christ. But more importantly, the heart of generosity isn't created by preaching giving. The heart of generosity is created by preaching Christ and God's generosity to us in Him. And when you see His glory truly, you'll be a generous church. You'll be a generous church. True children of God can't help but be generous after seeing how generous God has been to them in Jesus Christ. That's what we preach every Sunday. And if, and if you call yourself a Christian and are not generous, then you need to ask whether you truly understand the gospel of grace. The gospel of resurrection and the grace of God compel generosity in the people of God. And we should long for this great grace to be upon us. We should long for the Holy Spirit to press this gracious gospel into our lives that we might become more and more generous. What about the fear of God? The fear of God must also impact the church and and make us all the more amazed at His graciousness toward sinners. Right after this this, uh, account here of of the church's generosity, and it's just amazing, Luke sort of shifts now to a sobering character contrast between Barnabas and this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, of course, is the example to imitate. He, he's, he's the example that, that's carrying out what we just read about in terms of the generosity. He's held up as one of the, the wealthy landowners who, who sold a field that belonged to him, it says, in, in verse 37, and, and he brought the money and, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And interestingly enough, he's also a Levite, That's a stinging indictment to, this other, to the other priests who just persecuted the church, isn't it? This Levite represents a different priesthood. A true priesthood in Christ that fulfills the law by loving his neighbor, meeting their needs. His faith in Christ compels him to love his neighbor. Barnabas is being held up as what our priestly care for one another should look like, what our sacrifices should look like in meeting each other's needs. Not so with Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira are held up as a warning to heed. A warning to heed. Just like Barnabas, they they sell a piece of property. Just like Barnabas, they bring money. Just like Barnabas, they lay money at the apostles' feet. Any of us who, who saw them lay the money at the apostles' feet might have even thought, hey, great job, guys, nice donation, The grace of God is at work. Fist bump. 
But we know something's not right by the way Luke tells the story. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. He brought only a part of it, which wasn't the pattern from from earlier that we saw with these others. Something smacks of selfish secrecy. Something's up here, some intentional deception going on, while at the same time keeping a good face before others. And as the story goes on, the deception becomes clearer. This couple is pretending to bring all of the proceeds of their sale when in reality they've kept back some for themselves. You see, they want to look generous without the inconvenience. They went through the motions of generosity without having a heart of generosity. And God exposes them for their deceit. Uh, What they're doing is satanic, even. Uh, Verse 3 Why has Satan filled your heart? The idea is, how could you let this happen? Satan would fill your heart in this way. I mean, the book to this point has, has been about the Holy Spirit filling God's people. But, but Ananias is filled with Satan. Do not be fooled. Satan doesn't just attack the church from persecution outside. He also attacks the church from corruption inside. We have to be watchful. The enemy roams around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Give him no room in your life, no foothold. He whispers that this or that little sin, this or that little deception, this or that little white lie, it's okay. Nobody will know. God will tolerate it. God will forgive you. And before you know it, you're dead. Just like Adam and Eve. Just like Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. In John 8, it's no surprise that Peter then exposes Ananias as lying to the Holy Spirit over this. In verse 4, Peter says that he has lied to God. That is because the Holy Spirit is God. All they did was lie to the church, right? All they did was lie to men, right? Wrong. Lying to men is ultimately... Lying to God. Long before we lie to men, we've already lied to God. You see, people can't see the heart, but God knows the heart. Peter speaks with prophetic insight and boldness here. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You can try all you want to look generous, but God knows what's motivating your heart. You can try all you want to look like a Christian and act like a Christian, but God knows your heart. You can pretend to know the gospel of grace and speak all the Christianese you want and put money in the offering plate, but what matters most is what God knows about your heart. We can't fool Him. We can't treat His presence lightly. We can't fashion Him into a God that tolerates whatever we tolerate. Because of their deceit, because they side with Satan here, both Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. God 
kills them. It's an act of divine judgment. And it's not the only place the New Testament speaks of something like this. It'll happen to Herod in chapter 12 after he robs God of worship. Jesus warns the church in Revelation 2. Some of them are dappling with idolatry and sexual immorality. And he says, he warns them that, it, that unless they repent, he is going to strike Jezebel's children dead. And this, this sudden judgment on Ananias and Sapphira follows a number of examples in Scripture. The sons of Korah get swallowed up by the earth. You might remember Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire before the Lord and the Lord consumes them right before the altar. Someone reaches out when the oxen stumble and David's marching the ark into Jerusalem and he touches the ark and the Lord strikes him dead. The point of all these instances is that we may not trifle with the Holy One. We cannot approach God on our own terms. If we come to Him, we must approach on His terms with awe and humility and integrity of heart and trust in His provision, Jesus Christ. Sin is not a trivial matter when we're talking about the presence of God dwelling in the church. Ananias and Sapphira are held up like big, like two big warning signs on either side of the road. Do not follow in their steps. Do not listen to Satan's lies. Do not pretend to know God when you don't. Rather, fear God. That's the point. Twice, Luke says, great fear came upon all who heard it. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And great fear should come upon us as we hear these words today. God has not changed. Listen, perhaps this account of Ananias and Sapphira has struck great fear in you. You realize that you've been faking the Christian life all along. Listen, consider the fact that you haven't dropped dead a merciful gift of God. I imagine there's a whole lot of people in here who can look back over their lives and be just amazed at how patient the Lord has been. We, we shouldn't be asking about these instances throughout the Bible like, well, why did He do that? We, we should be asking, why, didn't he do, why doesn't He do it more often? Because He's patient. He's slow to anger. I remember telling my dad in high school as he's encouraging me to give some of my money that I was making to the church. And I said, if God wants my money, he can come and take it. Door slam. (laughs) Wax my truck. Why in the world did I not drop dead? Sheer mercy. Count this day as a day of mercy. And run into the arms of Christ for salvation. God doesn't owe you tomorrow. God doesn't owe you another second to repent. Why perish like them? God has made a way for you to be forgiven for all your deception through the cross. Renounce all future deception and trust in Christ to save you. 
We'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. Find me or another Christian in this room and talk to them. Lay your heart bare. It would be a joy to walk with you in knowing Christ. And church, we too must heed the warning here. It's not only God's promises that, that keep us persevering, but also God's warnings. His, his promises, if you can have a picture here of running a race, His promises are pulling us towards the finish line. We see the resurrection of the just. We see the reward of God in heaven. And His promises are pulling us closer and closer to heaven. And we keep in this life, we get tempted every once in a while to look back over our shoulder at the rewards on earth. And these warnings are snapping that head forward. You look to Christ. And you keep running there. And the promises are pulling you. And the warnings are pushing you until you cross the finish line. That's how they work. Don't ignore the warning. Don't just look at this and be like, once saved, always saved. Baloney. You're totally undermining how the warnings are supposed to function in the Christian life when you do that. Don't blow it off. Let it keep your head fixed on the prize. Of Christ. All motivations that contradict the gospel have no place in the church. More and more we live in a culture of tolerance. Sometimes that culture even creeps into the church. Churches have abandoned corrective discipline. Accountability to truth is regarded as judgmental. Instead of walking out repentance from sin, we have this attitude of, well, everybody does it anyway. There's a reason Jerry Bridges wrote a book ten years ago titled Respectable Sins. It's because the church has become tolerant to certain sins. Discontentment, frustration, unthankfulness, impatience, addictions, and and so on. A case like Ananias and Sapphira should keep us from going down the path of tolerating sin and treating it lightly. We must ask God to search our hearts to see if there be any waywardness in us like, Psalm, like the psalmist does. We must consider afresh the holiness of God. J.I. Packer gives this definition of holiness. God's holiness is everything about God that sets Him apart from us and makes Him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. Everything about God that sets Him apart from us and makes Him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. We must keep His holiness in our sights and live our lives before His very presence. Something else to take away is the apologetic value of Luke's honesty and realism here. I mean, he's very candid about the problems the church faced early on. This isn't going to be our our first encounter with a a problem. Uh, He's not trying to paper over the messiness of of, of church life. He he does give us the ideal. He, he, He gives us what the church could be when we respond rightly to the grace of God. But he's not afraid to tell the whole truth. And in doing so, I think people should should be all the more convinced that the book of Acts is a trustworthy account. He's not just posting the church's best moments on Facebook for people to like. 
He's telling the whole story, even those that unsettle us. Church is messy. And if you're looking for a church that's not messy, you're going to be in for a world of disappointment and loneliness. Jump in with both feet and trust the Lord to protect His church from evil. Striking Ananias and Sapphira dead isn't comfortable. But God isn't comfortable. And even within the messy situation we see here, we do see that God is faithful. He was protecting His people from Satan. Thanks be to God that even His judgments protect the church and bring a healthy fear of God upon the church. And lastly, let the gospel and grace of God compel generosity. I'll take you back to the beginning. Part, part of the reason Luke sets these two accounts beside one another is to make sure that we're motivated by the right things, that we're not just pretending to be gracious, but that we really know grace. Grace is in us and working. Change. Generosity is a matter of the heart, not just what you do on the outside. There was nothing wrong with Ananias and Sapphira's gift in itself. It was generous. It just lacked the heart of generosity. It was deceptive in the way they did it. Our hearts must be full of Christ and what God's grace has offered us through Christ. Listen, the only reason the grace of God... And the fear of God was upon this church to begin with was because the presence of God came to it. Came to these people. God chose to dwell with sinful people. He gave up His only Son to bring us into His presence. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no longer any condemnation. That's compelling generosity right there. That God would choose to give up His only Son to dwell with His sinful people like ourselves. That's generosity. You cannot put a price on that kind of generosity that His only Son would stand in our place under God's judgment. What kind of people ought we to be there for? Does our generosity make God's grace visible to the community around us? Do we steward our wealth in ways that, that leads outsiders to ask about this generous God? I'm not saying to create needs by giving to meet needs. But I am saying that the health of a church is determined in part on how well we treat the weak and needy in our midst. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper this morning. And I think we can take both of these aspects of God's presence, the fear of God, the the grace of God this morning into account when we come to the table. We can come to the table this morning with a great fear of God. A healthy fear of God. He is awesome in holiness and power. We can come humbly before Him with integrity of heart, not taking our sins lightly. We know that He did not take them lightly when He put His Son on the cross in our place. But we can also come with great thanksgiving because by putting our sins on His Son, we have been declared forgiven. We can know that this same God who is awesome in holiness and power 
has shown us great grace in giving up His Son. His grace in Jesus Christ is what fits us to sit at this table without condemnation or fear, but in peace with God. Let's take the supper together. Thank you.